it's an interesting service. It's often, it's often quite a somber service because it's the day we remember the death of Jesus. And we, we're going to take some communion later. And Jesus commanded his disciples when they had the Last Supper together. And he said, you know, I want you to do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I want you to remember this moment that's about to happen. It's a day where we, in some ways, we almost kind of, we put the resurrection on hold for a moment. We're like, we're not, we're not allowed to go there yet. You know, Jesus hasn't yet come out of the grave. So we're, trying to, we're remembering the moment on the cross and we pause to consider the reality of his death. And death is, is quite a subdued and, and a bit of a sobering reality. Anyone who's experienced the death of a loved one knows exactly what I'm talking about and can testify to that. There's, there's something inexplicable in death. There's a, there's a pain in our heart that doesn't really, like can't really be put into words. There's this miasma of emotions that we go through that, that you can't really explore until you've been there. And even for us as Christians where Jesus has overcome death at, by the resurrection and he's won for us eternal life, there's still a pain and a difficulty that we experience in death. And whilst maybe even the fear of death is lessened and the hopelessness of our loss has been redirected, we're still left with a hole in our hearts as we have to live in a reality where the person that we loved is no longer with us. And in some ways, Jesus' death on the cross was no different. You'll remember after the Garden of Gethsemane, he hasn't even died yet and his disciples are already scattered. They all run away, and as he is put to death, they are lost and confused because everything that they've been hoping for and the expectation of Messiah that they've been carrying in their hearts is suddenly dashed, and they don't know what's happening. And we read about Mary in the Gospels and how she mourned for the loss of her son and how the promise that she'd been given by the angel that her son would be the Messiah of Israel and save his people from their sins, and here she sees him hanging on a cross dying, and her heart is broken, and she's in mourning. And so in some ways, Jesus' death was very similar for the people around him. But in other ways, Jesus' death was very, very, very different. Because by his death, he became victorious in a cosmic battle that raged unseen in, to the eyes of men. We didn't get to see that battle that was happening. But on the day that he died, that victory began to transcend from the spiritual realm where it was happening. And it came shattering into the reality that we're able to perceive and understand in a way that actually doesn't make sense to us. That can't be rationally explained. And so this morning, we're going to look a little bit at that. We're going to look at some of the things that happened around the moment that Jesus died and try to understand and see some of the things that were going on in the realm that we can't see, which is why I've called my message this morning, Victory in Death, right? So we're going to, we're going to look at that. And, and we're going to start with the, the story of Easter that we all know. Right, this is, you know, we, we can start anywhere really in the story. It's a long, continuous story. But we're going to start at the Last Supper. You remember Jesus got together. He knew the time was coming where he was about to be betrayed. And so he gets together with his disciples and they're having this final supper together. And they're sitting around the table and he's sharing with them and he's telling them to, to you know, continue to do this in remembrance of him. And the moment is coming and they're all a bit confused. And then there's this really awkward moment where he's like, you know, well, you, Judas, you know, the guy that, you know, didn't do the thing, you're actually about to betray me, go out and do what, what you're going to do. And it's like real awkward for everyone else as Judas gets up and leaves and goes into the night. All right? And everyone's kind of battling with this thing. And they finish supper and Jesus says, okay, guys, we need to go, we need to go up onto a hilltop, the Garden of Gethsemane, because I need to pray. 
Because I know what's about to happen. And I'm about to be arrested and tortured and murdered. And I'm about to do something incredible that you might not be able to perceive, but it's going to be incredibly difficult. And I need to spend time with the Father. So please won't you come and pray with me. And so they go to the Garden of Gethsemane and, you know, Jesus begins to pray. And he's, his prayer is so intense that his sweat begins to fall like drops of blood. But his disciples fall asleep. And he keeps asking the guys, please pray with me. And they start and they fall asleep. And it happens about three times as Jesus is praying in anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the disciples keep sleeping. And eventually the time has come and he knows what's going to happen. And Judas arrives. His previous disciple, Judas with the leading priests and a squadron of Roman soldiers, and they arrest Jesus, and they have this little squabble, and Peter steals a guy's sword and chops off a guy's ear, and you know, Jesus heals it and you know, puts it all to bed. And he allows himself to be arrested, and he gets taken. And he starts that night in trial before a guy called Annas. He was called the high priest. He was probably the high priest in the previous um, stand and office, that you kind of maintained the title even after your standing office finished. So he appears before Annas, and he's tried before Annas, the high priest, and they all think he's guilty of blasphemy. And, but then, then he goes to Caiaphas, the current high priest, and he's tried before Caiaphas, and again, they, they find him guilty of blasphemy for claiming to be the Son of God, claiming to be one with God. Then in the morning of, um, of the Friday morning, he gets tried before the Sanhedrin. Right, the ruling leaders of the Jewish people, the Sadducees and the Pharisees are all together. And they hold a trial and they also find him guilty of blasphemy, of claiming to be the Son of God. And so then they, because they're a, a people that are under Roman law, they have, there's nothing they can do about it. Right? So they would like to kill him, but they're not allowed to. So now they have to send him off to Pilate, the Roman authority. And off he goes before Pilate and he has a big trial before Pilate. And Pilate doesn't really know what to do, and his wife has a dream, and he's sure, and Pilate's not really confused, and he's like, wait, hold on, Herod the Tetrarch, he's in town, I'll send Jesus off to Herod. So Jesus goes for his fifth trial, right, off to Herod, and Herod tries him, and he doesn't really want to do anything about it, so he sends him back to Pilate. Poor Jesus has been moved around all over the space, right, this moment, it's happening, it's coming up. And eventually he comes back to Pilate, and, and Pilate can't help but find Jesus innocent, and so he says to the people, like, I don't find him guilty of anything deserving of death. And so I'm going to have him flogged and then released. And then there's a huge to-do. Right? And all the people have a commotion. And they're not interested in that. And they say, no, we need to crucify him. That needs to happen. So then Pilate's like, I've got another escape. You know, normally on this, at the Passover, we release to you one of, one of the Jewish people that's being captured and held in prison. What about Barabbas? What if I release Barabbas to you? No, we don't want Barabbas. We want you to kill Jesus. That's the, actually, he wanted to release Jesus. They wanted, they wanted Barabbas, and they decide that Jesus was. So Pilate eventually relents, and Jesus is flogged and beaten and mocked. And then he gets marched off to Golgotha, the place of the skull, the place where he's to be executed by crucifixion. And along the way, they find Simon of Cyrene, who's there, and they make him carry Jesus' cross because he's been beaten so badly and flogged so severely that he's probably barely able to walk. And so Simon carries the cross up to the hill at Golgotha. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. It's about 9 o'clock in the morning on the hill of Golgotha outside Jerusalem. And we're going to read from Matthew's gospel. We're going to read a fair bit from verse 33 to verse 54 in Matthew chapter 27. And then afterwards we're going to look at a couple of things. So, so here's the story according to Matthew. Um, 
And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. That's bile. It's actually quite disgusting, right? But when he had tasted it, he wouldn't drink it because it's probably disgusting. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. So they've now nailed his feet into the wood and nailed his hands into the beams. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, well now save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, the Sanhedrin, they mocked him saying, He saved others, yet he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, that's about 12 o'clock, there was darkness that came over the whole land until the ninth hour, three o'clock. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. It is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and he filled it with sour wine and he put it on a reed and he gave it to Jesus to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see if, whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again in a loud voice and yielded up his spirits. And behold, the temple in the curtain was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And the earth shook, and rocks were split, and tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised to life. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. Friends, that's the record of how Jesus died. I think I could say with a reasonable amount of confidence that no other person in history has ever died like that. It's as though the very fabric of creation itself began to testify to the magnitude of what had just happened. So I want us to pause for a moment and I want us to just consider some of the things that Matthew writes about that happened at the moment of Jesus' death. Matthew says, the sky went dark. The sky went dark. You want to put that up, Mark? What, what happens to you when you hear that or when you read that? Do you think, like, that's, that's kind of strange? I mean, that's a little bit weird. Maybe, maybe it was some kind of extended solar eclipse or something. I did, some, I did some research about solar eclipses. You know, the longest solar eclipse in history so far happened on the 11th of July, 1991. It lasted for... Six minutes and 55 seconds. There's a solar eclipse that is scheduled to happen on the 16th of July, 2132. It's just over 100 years from now. Right? Scientists are confident that it will happen, and they are confident that it will have been the longest solar eclipse in the last 10,000 years of history. 
from 6,000 BC to 4,000 AD. This will be the longest solar eclipse that ever happens. It'll be 7 minutes and 29 seconds. When Jesus was on the cross, the sky went dark for three hours. That is totally and completely unprecedented. Like that, that doesn't, nothing turns the sun off. It's a large nuclear reaction happening in space. You know, I don't know how you turn that off. But as Jesus hung on the cross and the sin of the world is placed on his shoulders, the sky goes dark. The Greek, the meaning for the word dark there is dark as night. Right? It's not pitch black, but it's dark. Three hours. Then in verse 51, Matthew records for us that the temple in the curtain is torn in two. It's ripped from the top to the bottom. That is probably the, te- the, the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. Right? If we could distinguish between levels of holiness, the most holy place is the most sacred place in the Jewish religion. It's the place where the presence of God dwelt between the arms of the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant. It was a place so holy that the high priest and only the high priest was allowed to enter into it. Some of you will have heard this before. The high priest would only go in once a year because it was so holy and it was so terrifying to enter into the presence of God. So they would have to put bells onto his clothes and tie a rope around him because in case he died, in case he, the week he spent purifying himself before he entered into that place, in case he had missed something, he would be struck down in the presence of God. And so they couldn't enter to fetch him because they also wouldn't be holy. And so they would have to pull him out by the rope. And so the bells were there. If you could hear the bells, you knew he was alive. That's how holy this place was. To tear that curtain, and remember, no one has access to that curtain. Only, only the priests and the Levites and, and the guys at the top tiers of the temple have access to even get close to that curtain. To tear that in half would have been an act of the greatest sacrilege in the Jewish religion. No one would do that. And yet as Jesus commends his spirit to the Father, that curtain is ripped in two. The barrier between man and God is suddenly ripped apart. It's almost as though God himself has declared, no longer will man and God be separated. No longer will I be cut off from my people. Now is the time for a new covenant. Now is the time where I will be among them and they will be my people and I will be their God. And as he stormed out of the most holy place, he just took the curtain and ripped it apart. That's kind of what seems to be happening. We weren't there. In the same breath as the curtain is torn down, there's an earthquake that rocks Jerusalem. The whole earth shakes. Now, as I haven't done a lot of geography when I was at school. I found it a little bit boring. My apologies to those of you who enjoyed it. Right? But, but what I have learned, and as far as I can recall, and I checked this with Google, the only reason we get earthquakes is because the crust of the earth is made up of some big tectonic plates. And they move at about an inch a year. And every now and again, when the pressure between those plates builds up just enough, then there's a big earthquake, and it releases the pressure. But as far as I recall, earthquakes are not triggered by someone dying. That just doesn't happen, right? Many great and wonderful people have died. None of them have triggered earthquakes at the point of their death. None of them have moved a tectonic plate because they've died. So either we're sitting with the most monumental coincidence in the course of history, 
or God himself is trying to tell us something. Something has happened. Finally, we get this detail that's only recorded by Matthew. The other gospel writers don't, don't write about it. But we're told that the tombs split open, presumably because there was an earthquake, right? And then two days later, many of the people that were in tombs, who were dead and buried and covered in spices and stuff to make them not smell, uh, rose out of their tombs and began to walk around in Jerusalem as alive, living people. Many people saw them. Guys, that is not normal. That is not normal. I mean, at my funeral, I'll be happy if there are some people who are there to celebrate the fact that I've lived a life in service to God. I do not expect the sun to attend or the church that we're having the service in to be damaged or the earth to shake or dead people to get up and live. That is not the expectation of my funeral. Something incredibly special happened on this day. When Jesus died, what was visible, what we could see on the cross was only a partial picture of what was really going on. It's like the response of nature and all creation declare, as David writes in Psalm 19, to the glory of the Lord. So I want us, let's probe just a little bit deeper. See if we can work out a little bit of what was happening on the cross. See, while Jesus was on the cross, Matthew records two statements that he made. The first is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the next one, a little while later, is when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice and gave up his spirits. The first one happened at 3 p.m. You remember, the sky went dark at 12 o'clock. And after about three hours of darkness, Jesus cries out this perceived forsakenness by God. We're going to look at a scripture on Sunday as we go to Resurrection Sunday in Isaiah 53, where the prophet tells us about how Jesus is going to carry the sins of his people. That's going to be one of his roles. And he's going to give himself up as a sin offering for them and on their behalf. Paul says the same thing later on to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. I think in those three hours, as the sky darkened, I think God began to place the sins of the world upon Jesus. And that the darkening of the sun in the sky is symbolic of the darkening of His Son, who began to carry the sin. And for three hours, Jesus, who has never sinned in His life, begins to take up our sin, my sin, and your sin, as God accounts it all to Him and holds Him accountable for that sin. Until the time when three hours are up, where Jesus is now carrying the sin of the entire world, all the sin that has ever been committed, and all the sin that will ever be committed. It's all on Him. It's all in Him. And after three hours where the sin is so great, He has to cry out, and He cries out, My God, my God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? All of my life, I've known your intimate presence, and yet now, in this moment of my most terrible trial, I feel abandoned by you. I feel lost. Where are you?
And after a few moments, as the soldiers kind of debate giving him something to drink, he cries out again and releases his body to death. Matthew doesn't record those words, but both John and Luke record his words. Jesus cries out, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And we just read that and we have words. You know, try for a moment and just put yourself in Jesus' place. Just try and, and think a little bit about what that might be like. Your body is in absolute agony. You've been beaten and flogged. And then they've put you on a cross and nailed your feet to it at a funny angle and nailed your arms. And you're hanging on your arms. So you're constantly in pain in the nails that are through your wrists. And you can barely breathe because your lungs are being stretched. And so in order to breathe, you have to stand on your feet. But as you stand on your feet, you put pressure into the nails that are on your feet. And so it's excruciating for every breath that you need to take. And after three hours, for three hours, you begin to absorb and carry all the sin that has ever been committed. It begins to become yours. You know how bad you feel after doing something wrong, something really wrong. Imagine all the sin of the world, every murder, every rape, every gang rape, infanticide, the, every genocide that's ever been committed, everything that's ever been done in a concentration camp, all the little things that I do and you do and that have ever been done, every sin gets placed on you. All the evil of the world is put into your heart. How do you survive that? How are you not simply overwhelmed to the point where you just die because the emotional trauma is too much to bear? And then after three hours of this indescribable agony in both body and spirit, Jesus cries out in a loud voice and he says, It is finished. It is done. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And at that moment, the sky breaks and light comes flooding back in and the earth begins to shake and everyone falls to the ground and the rocks splinter and shatter and sections of the hillside are falling away. How do you not respond like the Roman centurion who a few hours earlier had joined in the mocking of Jesus and now he cries out and he says, surely, surely there is no other explanation. This man was the son of God. This man was the son of God. And Jesus created victory in his death. Paul writes later to the Colossian church and he's describing what God has done for them. But as he does that, he makes one of the most poignant statements about what Jesus did on the cross. He says this in Colossians chapter 2 from 13 to 15. It's not going to be on the screen, so you're going to have to listen. It says, you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. But then God made you alive with Christ and he forgave all of your sins. And he canceled the record of the charges against you and he took it away by nailing it to the cross. And in this way, by taking away your sins, by forgiving them, by putting them on Jesus on the cross, in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities and he shamed them publicly 
by His victory over them on the cross. When Jesus hung on the cross, He won a victory over the powers of darkness and evil. He shamed them and He made a spectacle of their defeat. The things that we read about, the things that Matthew recorded, the signs that began to happen in the physical was God publicly shaming all the efforts of the enemy to destroy humankind. It was creation testifying that no matter how hard Satan tried, he had failed and he had lost and Jesus had won. Matthew records for us, what he records for us is that physical shaming. Instead of Jesus succumbing to the power of evil, he tore away its power and he destroyed the ability of the devil to hold people in bondage. And there is now true freedom for those of us who know Jesus, who have found Him, who have recognized our own sinfulness and turned to Him for forgiveness and received His grace and refilled by His Spirit. There is now total freedom for us because Jesus comprehensively and completely defeated the power of Satan when He gave up His life on the cross. That's why we call today Good Friday, not Sad Friday. Today is Good Friday because today we get to celebrate. We celebrate that in His death, our Lord won for us the greatest victory of all time. Amen? Amen. What I'd love for you to do, I'm kind of done. I'd love for some of you to just lead us in prayers of thankfulness to God. We're just going to close out. We're going to pray together. And as you feel led by the Spirit, to just offer up a prayer of thanks to God for what He has done. Won't you do that? And after we've done that, we're going to take some communion together. We're going to remember what Jesus our King did and how He gave up His life so that the power of Satan would be destroyed and how He put Satan to shame by displaying that there is only one King and one Lord and His name is Jesus. And so as we take communion, Struan is going to come and play a new song for us And he's going to sing that over us. And if some of you happen to know, because it's quite an old song, you're welcome to sing with it. But we're going to do that together, and then we're going to bring our time together to a close. But let's start. Why don't you lead us in prayer together and celebrate the goodness of our God?